please open up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, that Bible is now yours. Write your name in it. Lord bless you. We want to get the Word of God into the hands and hearts of people. Amen? Luke chapter 18, 1 through 17 is where we'll be. But we ended chapter 17 last week with Jesus speaking to his disciples about his second coming. In verse 24 17, Jesus said that his return would be like lightning, it would be unmistakable. When we were uh, kids in, in San Diego, um, we have the military base close by. We've got a couple of them. We're surrounded by them. So um, one of the things that would quite often happen is they'd do these drills where they would just do live artillery into the hills, and you'd just sit there, and all of a sudden, boom, your windows would shake, and you'd just go, what was that? You know, we couldn't distinguish what was an earthquake or what was the military doing their thing down there. But... Um, Jesus says his return is not going to be this, this subtle thing, similar as it was to his first return. His second return is going to be like lightning. And, and he uses that description because it will capture everybody's attention. It will be unmistakable. And uh, we read uh, verses where um, great signs in the heavens will happen. And, um, th- you know, as they see the Lord coming in, in great glory, the world's going to mourn. And so it'll just be an amazing event. And so Jesus says that his return will be unmistakable in chapter 17. Then the remainder of chapter 17, Jesus describes that his return would be sudden upon the world and it would bring about judgment. His return is going to bring judgment, just like the flood of Noah's day and just like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah as destruction by fire. It was sudden. As soon as the people were in the boat, the flood came. As soon as Lot left Sodom, the fires fell. And in light of his sudden return, Jesus says in verse 32 of chapter 17, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Whoever tries to keep their life, <clears throat> uh, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. The warning that Jesus gave was that either you were like Lot, who escaped the wrath by freeing. Uh, from the love of the world and towards a Savior in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a fleeing away from this present wicked generation and towards Jesus Christ, a living in holiness, so to speak. But basically, it begins with faith in Christ, the realization that we need a Savior. And when we call out to Him and He saves us, we realize what we've been saved from. We run. We live a life that's holy and separate from the world, even though we're in it, we're not of it. We're not like Lot's wife, who is the other group who says, yeah, I'm kind of churching it here. I'll hang out. With my, yeah, my husband's dragging me out of destruction, so to speak. But that's not really what, where her heart was. Because when it came down to it, she loved Sodom more than she loved uh, the Lord, so to speak. And that's the picture there. And Jesus is using these words to describe Um, those who have been saved from the judgment of God, that's us. We are to live these godly, holy lives. 
And uh, we are to allow the Holy Spirit to reign and rule within us. And we know that that's a, that's a process of sanctification. How many of you know that um, as the, the further you walk with the Lord, the more you need uh, Him just to take over every area of your life? And um, so as we long for and pray for the return of, of the Lord, um, we have to um, live these holy lives that God speaks of. And Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That's an amazing statement there. In verse 11, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So Peter would stand here and he says, Listen, it's all going to be incinerated. And because it's all going to be incinerated, and because you are saved out of that, what kind of lives ought you to live? And Peter would say that to you with absolute authority, looking into your lives as the children of God, the redeemed of God, those who are out of Sodom, those who have left the world, so to speak. Our hearts are no longer here. They're with our king. Amen? So he would say that. He says, since this is the way it's going to be, how ought you to live? And you ought to live... Holy and godly lives. Holy means sanctified, set apart, right? Godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God in speed, it's coming. That's a whole message right there. I won't do it. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt with heat. In Mark verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I love uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about Abraham who was looking forward to a city whose builder was not made with human hands. It was made by the Lord. That's our home. That's our city. This is all falling apart. Amen. And he, all the homeowners said, yes, Amen. <laughs> No more entropy. Oh, praise the Lord, you know, uh, with our bodies and all that. But he said, goes on, Peter goes on and says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Make every effort to be spotless, blameless, and, with, and uh, at peace with him. I love that beautiful tension the scripture puts. Yes, he saves you, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Isn't that interesting? Boy, I love that. And we are looking forward to the time when the king with his kingdom is going to be established here on earth. When it materializes and his righteous rule comes. But right now, we're to be manifesting his rule within our lives and within the influence we have. Amen? But the fact is that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, be ready. And to every generation, he could come back or he could, he could not. He could wait. And we live in an increasingly wicked world. Amen? At least our definition of it is. I mean, back then people were saying it's horrible. But I mean, I think it is getting increasingly wicked. Paul des- describes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 of the perilous times that would face the righteous in the last days. This is, this is Paul's description of perilous times. How many of us think like, oh, no, global warming and, you know, uh, people shooting each other in the street, things like that. But Paul describes the character and the nature of humanity as the perilous times. It's really interesting. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last day. And here it's described, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal and not lovers of God, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than loving lovers of God, basically reality TV. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, he says, have nothing to do with such people. That holiness, that being set apart, These are the things that Paul calls perilous in the end times. Treacherous is be careful. It's as if we're to remain unstained by these things. And that should be a conviction. It's convicting me of what we allow into our our lives and, and influence. Now, that does not mean that we're not with unbelievers and we don't influence and hang out with them and all that stuff. Paul said we'd have to go out of the world in order for that to happen. No, we're to be in, but we are to be the influencing factor. Amen not the other way around. But I believe that description there increasingly describes the world in the last days. And I believe that's the times we're living in. And we are kind of, we are a picture kind of of like Lot, who Peter called for some reason a, a righteous man. I look at Lot and I kind of look at his life and go, man, he made some bad decisions with his family and all that type of stuff, where he placed his family. Let's go live in Sodom, yeah. You know, he chose those things and he reaped the whirlwind as we see with his daughters and his wife and all these types of things. But nevertheless, he is a righteous man in God's eyes. I just, I, that, I take hope in that, Amen. But it says that he was vexed by the unrighteous world around him. And, I'm, and, and you have to go read the verse basically there in, um, oh gosh, I didn't write down the verse, says somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> Google it. I had it in there and I deleted it. I look awesome now. He was right. He was righteous, right? And so as the righteous living, as we are the righteous living in an unrighteous world, are we living in anticipation of Christ's return? Are you living in anticipation of seeing Jesus? Is your heart like, I am overwhelmed with the wickedness that's going on in this world, in my own heart and life even, amen? Lord Jesus, come quickly, set things straight, When we see the injustices, do we think that they are going to be totally 100% resolved through the political system? Have you seen a pattern on earth for the past, whoever long you want to go back? Occasionally there's a good king, but most are not in the reflection of the society they live in. So we are living in times that, that break our hearts. What do we do with that? We pray. We call out to God. We say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Come set these things straight. Come set them right. And so as we live in light of his return, we are to endure the promised persecutions of those who live godly in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution from the world. The world will reject you as you live after him, as you live a holy life. And so Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples and obviously to those of us who would be waiting for his coming. 
and enduring the injustice, the unrighteousness that pervades, all, you know, this just is all around us. In chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, says, Then Jesus told this, his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. Verse 4, for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice and so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And this is a great political figure here. As I mentioned to you recently, Israel was not a democracy, although the Israelites desired, uh, uh, they desired a monarchy. They asked for a king. They got King Saul and had kings, and it was a part of God's plan. But the, the heart of the nation was to be that they were to be a people ruled by God. They were to be a theocracy is, is what it was supposed to be. That's what it was supposed to be. And so unlike our constitution and the separation of church and state, Israel did not have that separation of church and state. The law of God was the law of the land. And so there were institutions of the king and the priests and prophets and judges at various times. And those people were to lead people in the law of God and the things of God and to be those mediators and those judges among men. And judges had a specific role. This man was a judge, and they said that this guy didn't care about God and he didn't care about people. That's not the greatest person, that's not the personality you want to have in a judge, right? No, you want to have someone who cares about the law and actually cares about people and, and, and has integrity in that. So Jesus paints this picture of this horrific man. But judges did have a specific role, and the Israelites would know that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, this is a good one to describe uh, what the roles of were of, of judges. There's many, but King Jehoshaphat of Judah appointed judges in Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And in that 2 Chronicles chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, it says, Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and then he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord. What a good king the God of their ancestors. Verse 5, he appointed judges in the land in each one of the fortified cities. He told them, consider carefully what you do. The king is speaking to the judges. He is appointing them and he's giving them marching orders. He says, be careful what you do because you are not judging mere mortals, but for the Lord who is with you wherever you give a verdict. You're his representative. Verse 7, now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, partiality, or bribery. God is not unjust. He is not, he doesn't have display partiality. He doesn't care how rich, how poor, what status you are, all that type of stuff. It, it does not he doesn't even care about that stuff when it comes to judging. He doesn't take bribery. How many of us say, God, if you do this, then I'll do this? Doesn't work. The correct answer is, God, thy will be done. I totally surrender. 
And so judges were judging the people of God on behalf of God. They were to be marked by the fear of the Lord and to carefully judge without partiality and, Lord forbid, taking bribes. And every Jew would know these verses. So Jesus described a judge who was the opposite of what a judge should be in that this judge did not fear God, nor did he care what people thought. And sadly, you can find in secular writings of the same time descriptions of the judges of the times of a, lack, a total lack of fear of God, that people, that the judges of the times would change their verdicts based upon whether someone would give them a dinner or not. I mean, they were just totally given over to these things, and so there was a lot going on there. Bribery prevailed, and justice prevailed. One of the reasons why Israel was judged in the Old Testament was the way that they treated their widows, that they allowed injustice to happen, that those who could not help themselves were taken advantage of, preyed upon by the powers that be. God brought judgment upon Israel for that and amongst other things. It's a very serious thing. And so the judges Jesus is describing that he's created here is unjust in this story. He's unrighteous and he's evil. And the widow persistently came to him, begging him to grant her justice against her adversary. Now the courts were run by men. It's a man's world. It always has been. I'm sorry. And guys aren't the best, believe it or not. But that's what was going on in this culture. And if you were a woman, you were under the authority of the men in the home. That's the same way it is in the Middle East right now. And so what would happen is that if a woman did not have a man to represent her, she would have no standing in the court, so to speak. There was no covering. There was no one to go out there if there wasn't a relative who would, who would take care of her. And so most likely this woman, she didn't have a husband She wasn't able to be taken care of financially. She couldn't hire the lawyers, and so she just, all she could do was beg. God, help. And so this woman, in this helpless state, she relentlessly begged the judge. And this unjust judge, what did he do? He ignored her. He ignored her. And Jesus says in verse 4, For some time he refused her, but then finally said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the idea in the Greek is that the widow is wearing him out. She is beating him up with her pleas for help to the point where he finally is motivated by his own selfishness to give in, to give her legal protection. It has nothing to do about her. It has nothing to do about her plea. It just has to do with his own self-preservation. Isn't that the way the political system works sometimes? It's sad. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Listen to what he says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? He's contrasting here. 
So Jesus is saying, if the unjust judged act out of selfishness, what do you think God, who is the exact opposite of this judge, will do? For those who cry out to him day and night, the elect, the chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, whatever your version says. And this is the point. It's been 2,000 years. The world is getting increasingly evil. Christians are being persecuted all over the world. The last days are upon us, it seems, and injustice and unrighteousness abound. Is God even there? Where are you, God? I think Habakkuk was the one who kept crying out and asking these questions to God. How come the evil prevail? How can all these things keep happening? Where are you? Are you even alive? Peter wrestles with this. How many of you feel like that sometimes? Like your body's falling apart. People are becoming increasingly evil. There's a departure from reality and truth and all these types of things. How many of us experience this on a daily level and we just kind of go, you know, I trust you, but where are you? Why aren't you answering? Anybody there? Is God even there? The answer is what? Yes. The answer is yes. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus told his disciples, this parable to show them that they should what? Always pray and never what? Give up. It might seem like we are in the widow's position. We're helpless. We're unrepresented. We're taken advantage of, unable to do anything to change anything. And it seems that as we pray, it's bouncing off the ceiling. You know what I mean? But Jesus says, no. Verse 7, And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? He describes His chosen ones as those who cry out to Him, what? Day and night. They're like that widow. Will He keep putting them off? God will not keep putting off his people. Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. When? At the day of the Lord. That day of the Lord's return will be like lightning when sudden destruction will come. We read in, as we read in chapter 17, he will come quickly and with him justice. Why is he taking so long, church? Why is he taking so long? Doesn't what? He doesn't want anybody to perish. Aren't you thankful he waited? Yeah. The reason why he hasn't come back is because of mercy. How many people do you know that need Jesus Christ, that are lost, that if his day would come now, that judgment would become upon them and they would be outside the boat. You see, we're torn as, I, not, I say we're torn, God isn't torn, he knows exactly what he's doing. But there's that heart for the justice of God and the love of God. And the justice of God and the love of God is met in Jesus Christ. We preach Christ to the world. 
He is the only way of escape. He is the Savior. Amen? And you are His plan. You are the light of the world. You are the ones who have the message of hope within you as you live in the world, but not of it. And as you share the message and the truth of Jesus Christ with the love of God abounding through you. Amen? Just as He is merciful, so we desire that they would experience, the world would experience the mercy of God. And we pray towards this end. But the reason there is that delay is not because of God's indifference. You have to know that in your suffering. It is not because God is indifferent towards you. He has a plan. He will come quickly. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that. That he desires that none should perish, but all come to repentance. Praise the Lord. And so we're waiting like that widow for his return. But verse 8 ends, he says, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Wow. Is that not just convicting or what? Is he going to find the widow pleading? Is he going to find us praying? And it seems like the Lord is, is being... I don't want to say sarcastic, but he's just most likely not. Very few will be. And so is our heart set on the return of Christ? Are we asking him for the return at the same time? Yes, Lord, save those who you're going to save. Lord God, please help. You know? Or are we kind of like Lot's wife, not even in the ballpark. And this is why Jesus keeps teaching like this. So that those who say that they're his would be woken up. Are you or are you not, you know? Are we in or are we out? Yes, God saves, but there's also, where's my heart in all of this? You know, I was talking to John, my son, and he was, he was saying, you know, there's a, you know, we know that God we're saved by grace through faith, which we'll talk about in a second, but then there's all these commands that we have to do. I said, well, it's like as if you say that you're on the Seattle Seahawks. I use the Chargers, unfortunately. And you say, uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm on the team. And yet you don't show up to practice. You don't put on a uniform. You're not at the facility. You're not on any of the games. There's nothing to do with that. It doesn't reflect reality. Does that make sense? Guess what? You're not on that team. But the fact that when you have your gear on and you're playing and, and they've called you and the coach said, come in and, and you're in a position and, and you're, that's a reflection that you actually are part of that. That's how those things work together. Are you on the team? Amen. That's something you can't manufacture. You can't make yourself on the team. You cry out, God, save me. And he puts you on the team. And then you begin to walk in your new position in Christ Jesus. Ephesians, go read it and soak it up. So, that's very convicting. May we hear what the Spirit says to the church. 
Will he find faith on the earth? Will we be those who are seeking him and praying? Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Seems like these things are disconnected, but they're not. All religions can be summed up into two categories. They can be summed up into two categories, either one of divine accomplishment or the achievement of man. Divine accomplishment or the achievement of man. Either God justifies or man thinks he did. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned to, to basically remove our sin. The Bible clearly teaches that God accomplished through Jesus Christ what we could not, in that Jesus, God's one and only Son, died on a cross that whoever would believe that Jesus died in their place would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, the substitution, God's Son for me. I didn't do anything to earn it. He did it all, and I simply believe in the accomplishment done by God. Amen? He did the work. He did it all. Praise the Lord. And so a person is accepted by God by trusting in the work of God that he accomplished through Jesus. That's how a person is saved. Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is the only religion that preaches that God did it all. God did it. All the other religions and even certain perversions of ours say that Man had a great part in that. We've got some kind of part in that. That I earned it. That I, if I pray five times a day, or if I knock on doors, or if I you know, do all these things, then, then I will attain right standing with God through works is what they're called. It's either a works-based or a grace-based salvation. And all the other religions of the world, and I will throw them into one group, are works-based. You look at Buddhism, Taoism, all these other things. They're works-based. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, even certain sects of Protestant um, you know, theology, we can just jump into all that type of stuff to where somehow we were working it. When you are saved, you are saved, by the way, for good works. And that's what we're doing here on Sunday morning. I'm not teaching, hopefully, you know, the unsaved. And that's why I do offer the gospel. But I assume that many of us are, are, are born-again believers. We've put our faith in the Lord. Now we need to learn to play the position. And if we aren't playing our position, we go, hey, are you on the team or not? See that tension that's always happening on Sunday morning? People go, oh, that was convicting. I'm like, I know. Because that's how Jesus teaches. That's how Peter teaches, how Paul teaches. constantly encouraging us in Christ Jesus to live for Him. Amen. Now, 
You can't go to church enough. You can't tithe enough. You can't do anything to earn salvation. You've got to make that clear. You can't get baptized. You can't do nothing that's going to save you. Nothing. God says it's like filthy rags. You believe in his finished work. What he did on your behalf, you say, thank you. I believe it, and now I give you, and I'm following you. That's salvation. It's by grace, God's undeserved, unmerited favor towards you. Why did you do that, God? Why would you provide that for me? Don't you know who I am? See, that's the difference between these two guys. One said, look what I've done. I'm thankful I'm not like you guys. But you aren't the standard, are you? We go, well, thankful I'm not like Hitler. He's not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, amen? He is the standard. Absolute, 100% sinless perfection. And I don't know about you, but I'm just not there. Some can testify in this room to that fact. But he is. He is my righteousness. And through faith in his finished work, the punishment that I deserved was put upon him. And I go free. Not free to go off the team, but now free in Christ to be all that God has called me to be. I'm adopted into his family. What a beautiful life. I've been given eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so the only way a man can be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone. Not works. The guy or gal next to you is not the standard. Amen? So we preach Christ crucified. The way is narrow. It's through faith in Christ alone. And that grates against human pride, doesn't it? Because I want to have a stake in it. It's Jesus in me that saved me. Now it's actually Christ in you. <laughs> Anyways. But don't be confident in your own righteousness, church. Like this man who thought that because he didn't do all the blatantly bad sins that he was somehow righteous before God when he smacked of spiritual pride. Something else that is totally abhorrent to God. God doesn't respect positions. He didn't care the fact that he was a Pharisee and the other guy was a tax collector. We know about tax collectors in that society. They were looked down upon. Pharisees were the, were the Jedi. You know? God didn't show partiality. He couldn't be bribed by all the tithing and all that stuff. But Jesus said, I tell you this, man, that tax collector went home justified before God. Why was he justified? He wasn't the religious guru. He was a tax collector, and it was because he humbled himself before God and trusted in God for his salvation, not his own righteousness. Jesus says at the end of verse 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's finish verse 15 through 17 quickly. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Nice job, guys. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. These are important verses underlined. Have you received the kingdom like a little child? If you have not, you will not enter into it. Jesus is not like, okay, maybe that one. No, he's serious. I love Jesus in, in that he does love the little children. Amen? And I love the fact that people longed for Jesus to, to hold their children, to put his hands on them and to pray for them and bless them. Amen? That should be the heart of every parent, to get our kids into the hands of Jesus Christ. To not be like the disciples who create obstacles. You know, a lot of well-meaning parents, including myself, have been obstacles to our kids um, coming and in, in, in experiencing Christ because we have a messed up view of things, you know? How can we put more of Jesus in front of our kids always? And it's up to the Holy Spirit, obviously, to, to quicken that in the heart of a kid. You can't force him into the kingdom. But I tell you what, we should make every effort to put him in the hands of, of Jesus. But there are obstacles. And Jesus rebuked those people who were doing that. And he said, let the little children come to me. I think this is important for us parents, grandparents, and disciples to listen to that. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so Jesus uses little kids as an illustration about what kind of person must have, uh, what kind of faith a person must have to enter the kingdom. A childlike faith, not a childish faith, a childlike faith. And we know that when we were growing up, our parents told us all sorts of stuff and we just believed them, didn't we? You know? And hopefully they were telling us the truth. Amen? But there's just something about a child's heart. You tell them what something is and they just go, okay. We're to have that faith in Christ, just simply believing that Jesus Christ died in our place and rose again on the third day. We simply believe it. Yes, Lord, I believe what you say is true. And you will have salvation. You see, it's not through the wisdom of man. God made it so simple that a child could come into the kingdom. Don't you love that about the Lord? It's just the simple gospel, the good news, the grace of God towards us. The question is, do you believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and that he rose again on the third day? Do you simply believe it? Now, as you say yes, you will find that that is an inexhaustible vein that you will find the depths of that richness. And that is an amazing journey for the rest of our lives. Oh my Lord, just what you've done for me. Truly I tell you, verse 17, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So we have the responsibility and the great privilege of presenting Christ to people this Christmas season. Amen? You have the responsibility and the joy of of spreading that to little kids. Don't ever be afraid to share Jesus with a little kid. Amen? Neighbors, kids, it doesn't make a difference. Get the word in their hearts. Present it to them. Give them Jesus. 
You know, we often think it's, it's our ability to articulate the gospel. It's just so simple. And the Holy Spirit will quicken the truth in the heart of someone. And they will respond. And then they will find out the riches of it as the light gets turned on. Amen? Just trust in the Lord. Share the, share the gospel with people. And let him worry about the heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your word has been taught, and we ask that it would fall down on good hearts. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for this season in which we remember that you came and you humbled yourself. And Lord, I pray that we would humble ourselves, Lord. Father, we ask for many people to come to Christ through this fellowship of believers. And Lord, as we wait for your return, God, we plead that your righteous kingdom would come. We ask that we would be unblemished, unstained from the world, that you would convict us of those areas in our lives that we just need to let go of and flee from. And we know that you'll give us the power and strength to do it, Lord. May you be glorified in how we live and what we do. And I pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength in this season. Amen.